this is Joshua 5, verses 1 through 12. Now, it came about when all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, <clears throat> heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gilbeth, yes, Gilbeth Haraleth. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Their children, whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. Now when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land unleavened cakes, and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. Thank you, Bix. Last uh, Shabbat, I mentioned the three Bs, and if you were not here, you may look at me somewhat cluelessly, and that's okay. Um, they refer to getting the house ready for Passover. First one is bedikat chametz, the searching for leaven. The second one is bitul chametz, the acknowledging that leaven is not in the house. And biur chametz, taking the leaven and... Um, purging or burning it. And by the way, this has been done traditionally. It's rarely done today um, because it's highly inconvenient. It's much uh, easier to take your uh, Twinkies and uh, other miscellaneous items that have these uh, little fungi in them called uh, leaven or yeast and um, do something else with them. So people have come up with all sorts of inventive approaches. Um, 
for preparing the house for Passover, but if you have read the New Testament, you know that Yeshua's disciples prepared the upper room for the Passover, and they scoured the room to make sure that there was no leaven in it in order for them to be able to sit and prepare the Passover. As you can imagine, the preparation of the Passover is not just the physical getting rid of leaven, but in Scripture, leaven often, particularly in the New Testament, refers to sin, i.e., um, leaven that is spiritual, because you may know that if you take yeast, and if particularly uh, if you are a baker, you know, you put a little bit of yeast in a bunch of dough, and, and the impact spreads all over, uh, and it sours the batch of dough. And likewise, Scripture points out that sin in our lives that is not dealt with, it's not addressed, um, has the same effect. It spreads and it contaminates or pollutes. And that is why the Word of God demands that we are serious about seeing to it that our houses, our spiritual houses, are free of leaven and so that we are prepared for the pas- ready to pre- and have prepared for the Passover. Paul, for example, speaks about this principle in 1 Corinthians let me just read to you a couple of statements. A little yeast works through the batch of dough. Get rid of the old leaven that you may be a batch without yeast, as you really are, for Messiah, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. This is, of course, from... 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul is speaking to his spiritual babies and demanding that they, they get rid of the gross sin of immorality that was there in Corinth at that, at that point. So that we can probably understand. However, when we look at a passage like Joshua chapter 5, you may be scratching your beard if you have one and uh, wonder just what to do with this, as I did earlier this week, and said, uh, Lord, are you really sure you want me to talk about this? And uh, as much as I tried to wiggle out, um, the Almighty just wouldn't let me wiggle out. So um, I believe there's a good word for us, and so I want to pause and ask that the Lord would give us the ears that we need to hear what the Lord wants to speak to us. Lord God, we thank you for your word in its entirety as it challenges us, as it encourages us. Lord God, we pray that your word will not return void, but that it would accomplish all that you have ordained for it, and that it would succeed wherever it is that you have sent it. And we pray for each one of us, Lord, that we would be able to hear and grasp and understand and 
embrace and take and apply your word in, in our lives so that we will grow by it. And we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. So last Shabbat, um, Elaine spoke about Rahab the prostitute, and this week I'm speaking about circumcision. Um, what's the bigger picture here? And that's something we always have to be able to step back and, and see the larger picture. And sometimes the Word of God gives us clues that are kind of embedded in, in the passage. And in this case, what we have is something that can be called a literary sandwich or basically a couple of bookends. And you have a couple of statements at the very beginning of this chapter and you have a statement at uh, the beginning of chapter 6 that kind of give you a clue that what's going to take place in chapter 5 is going to have something to do with both of these statements, both of these bookends. So I want to read to you both of these statements and see if we can tune in to what is going on with both of these bookends so that we can come and say, okay, now that I see the bigger picture, let me see if I can understand what's going on here. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and the Canaanite kings along the coast heard that the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted and no longer had courage to face the Israelite. Now, that's one bookend. Then in chapter 6, verse 1, Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. So if you step back for a minute, you get the strong impression that whatever is going to take place with the circumcision, it has something to do with the fact that God had been at work. God was doing big stuff in the heavenlies invisibly and that's part of his gracious plans for the nation of Israel um, tomorrow night as we celebrate the, the Seder the Passover we will sit from four cups um, actually four times and the Haggadah points out that the four cups are based on four strong statements that God makes uh, to the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 6. He states, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Statement number one, and I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. That's the second I will. The third I will... I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I'm the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And the fourth I will, and the fourth cup, is I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. So in other words, if you back up you see that what's going on in these chapters, particularly in chapter 5, isn't just the facts on the ground with the circumcision, 
but it is the fact that God is working his plan that he has been doing all along and what we have been seeing as far as the facts on the ground is a portion of it. So we've seen that God delivered Israel from bondage. He managed to keep them sane and fed for 40, uh, 40 years. They have crossed the Jordan River and now they're in the land. Gilgal was about two miles northeast of Jericho. And what you may or may not understand is that God has been softening the opposition. And if you're a World War II buff such as I am, you know that before the Allied landed on the beaches of Normandy and other places, they had their artillery uh, barraging the opposing uh, beaches, the opposing uh, territory of the enemy in order to make the way for the infantry to come. And that's, in essence, what God is doing. He's softening the ground by causing the enemies of Israel, the Canaanites, to be petrified. And how that happens is a mystery, and that's okay. Uh, but obviously, God is doing something supernaturally to prepare the ground for the people of Israel to come. So that's... The book ends. God is working. God is doing his plan. God is preparing. Now, what's the circumcision about? You can imagine that the people of Israel would say to God something like, you want us to do what? Um, let me just point out a couple of facts, and I'm not going to get very uh, specific here. Circumcision for adult males is major surgery. And obviously, they underwent circumcision without anesthetic. And furthermore, there were two miles away from Jericho. And they just put that in your, in your mind, in your brain, and process that for a minute. Uh, just to give you a little bit of a um, contrast... You may have gone, you may have undergone surgery like I have several years ago where you come in and they get you um, injected with happy juice so that you're essentially clueless and uh, eventually just kind of float into a uh, surgical nirvana as it were and then uh, you wake up in some degree of la-la land and um, not quite sure what's going on other than perhaps having your family and friends there to reassure you and then uh, health professionals coming by and checking your, your oxygen levels and so on and so forth. Um, something dramatically different. Um, surgery is not something very painful and for the children of Israel and anybody who underwent surgery as an adult, they were basically dead, almost dead, comatose, for quite a period of time. We see in Genesis chapter 34 that the sons of, Sh of Shechem uh, underwent surgery, and they were basically worthless uh, as far as ability to interact, to do anything for at least three days. Again, 
the people are facing their enemy. They're defenseless. And God is saying, I want you to undergo this circumcision, this surgery. Why? Because that's something I have laid down as part of the covenant. All the way back in Genesis 17, the Lord says, This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The Lord is speaking to Abram, of course. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you for the generations to come. Every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. This is uh, 17.10, and then verse 13, at the end, my covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. In other words, this is something, a, a physical expression of a spiritual reality, and the spiritual reality is that God called the nation of Israel to be, to be in a covenant, in a marriage relationship with him. And what we forget is that again and again and again in the Torah, God is saying to Israel, I want you. I want to be in a marriage, in a covenant relationship with you. And so, yes, I want the physical to be done, the outward sign of circumcision. But what I'm really interested in is the internal circumcision of the heart. Deuteronomy, in a couple of places, the Lord commands Israel by saying, Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. This is in chapter 10, verse 16. And then in chapter 30, verse 6, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that they may love you with all your heart and with all your soul and live. And basically what the sense of these two passages simply mean is that we tend to have a hard layer over our hearts. We get hardened and the Lord says, you know, I don't like that because that hinders my love relationship with you and I want to peel that hardened layer off and give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart towards me. So it's not a case of either or, either be physically circumcised or spiritually circumcised, but both. And of course, it's an expression of obedience by the parents for their children. And part of what the Lord is saying for the children of Israel as they were preparing to celebrate the Passover that first time is that everyone who wanted to participate in the Passover, had to be circumcised. Now we're preparing to celebrate the Passover tomorrow evening, and I'll address some comments to that in a, mom in a moment or so. But again, what is God always looking for? He's looking for the heart. He's looking for the heart. Is there the willingness to be obedient to God by faith? And by the way, remember that if you are facing your enemies who are two miles away, and two miles, folks, is just say from, from here to Hampton or you know, here to um, 
Arapaho or some such. He, we're not talking huge distance. It had to be an expression of obedient faith. And for some reason, Israel was sluggish to do that. Remember that God almost killed Moses because Moses didn't have his kids circumcised. And that was unacceptable. It was a non-negotiable. And here in Joshua chapter 5, we see that part of what took place in the desert is an unwillingness of the people of Israel to obey God, and that is why they died. And here the Lord is saying, the situation has to change. There has to be a circumcision physically and a circumcision of the heart as you're preparing to come into the new land. Not something that the people might have jumped at because they didn't know what the heavenly facts were going on. They really didn't have a clue that God was working spiritually and supernaturally to soften the ground, to prepare the ground for them to come into the land. All they knew at that point was God said, get circumcised. And they had a basic choice. Are we going to do it or not? Are we going to obey God or not? Despite the fact that we may feel defenseless and exposed, are we going to obey God? So what are the spiritual implications of the circumcision? First of all, let me address a comment about where we are as fellow believers. By the way, a couple of points need to be made out. One is that the New Covenant, the New Testament, states clearly that those who come from the nations, Gentile believers, are not to become physically part of Israel. That's very clear from Acts chapter 15 and other places. They basically say, look, you are who you are. Rejoice in what God has made you, in who God has made you. Amen. Psalm 139, you're fearfully and wonderfully made as a Jew or as a Gentile. Not just accept it, revel in it. Be comfortable in your own skin. Amen. I say that because I know there Folks have looked at Joshua and looked at Exodus 12 and have agonized over whether should I, I've never been circumcised, should I become circumcised? And the brief answer is absolutely not. God is looking for a circumcision of the heart. By the way, also a second fact is that in the New Testament, the term uncircumcised was never an expression of contempt. It was just a label. Uh, Paul and, and Peter were stated as having different assignments. Peter was called to be an apostle to the circumcised, and Paul was called to be an apostle to the uncircumcised. Just like all of us have our label. For example, I, ha I hold dual, dual citizenship, and so I'm an Israeli American. Uncircumcised simply means one who is not a Jew. And the Word of God encourages us to be one in Messiah. There's unity in Messiah, Jews and Gentiles. That is the amazing 
miracle that God does, he brings people from different backgrounds, different perspectives, diverse individuals, and he somehow makes us into one. That's the miracle of what God does, the unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. So what, what do we do with, with this example here of Israel becoming circumcised as they prepare to go into the land and take possession of it? This to me is such a wonderful example of a scripture that doesn't apply and yet it does apply. For example, you look and you see in the Torah all the commandments that speak about leprosy. And what do you do with that? Is none of us here is a leper, right? Any lepers here? Okay. So what do we, what do we do? Do we just dismiss it and say this does has nothing to do with me? Well, yes and no. Directly doesn't because we're not lepers. However, the word of God is given for us to follow and obey. So what do we learn here? And I believe what is given to us is explained here in Scripture. God doesn't leave us clueless. He says in verse 9, The Lord said to Moses, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal. By the way, Gilgal comes from a Hebrew word that simply means to roll. To this day. How on earth did God roll away the reproach of Egypt? What is the reproach of Egypt? By the way, like anything else, there are a number of different Bear with me for a minute. I'll get it, Jay. There are a number, number of different explanations. First of all, let me explain what the word reproach means. It's a very strong word in Hebrew. Cherpa. Can you say cherpa? This is not just your garden variety kind of shame, you know, the kind of sarcasm that you get from folks like Jay Leno who are uh, public in cutting folks down because they are, uh, well, that's how they make their living. Cherpa typically means to defame a person's character, to ruin someone's reputation, and it's often directed towards an enemy. So it means to heap scorn, to taunt, and it's typically part of psychological warfare. It's designed to beat down the opponents so that their threat is minimized. We see a good example of that with Goliath. Goliath stands facing Israel and says, To this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man, let us fight each other. In other words, you guys are not really men, you're mice. And so on hearing the Philistines' words, this is uh, 1 Samuel 17.10, on hearing the Philistines' words, Paul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So his reproach served its purpose. It demoralized, it devastated the Israelites. 
And they, all they wanted to do was stand and instead of fight, they just wanted to run. You have another good example of reproach, of course, with the commander-in-chief of the Assyrian army who stands in front of the wall in Jerusalem and says to them, Are you kidding? You want to listen to your king, Hezekiah? Look at what we have done. We have had all these other nations for lunch, and you think you're going to be any different? So that's an example of reproach. But in the case of Egypt, what is the reproach of Egypt? Well, there are a couple of possibilities. And I'm quoting from Hélène Delaire's commentary here, which will come out in print soon, we believe. Reproach of Egypt can refer to the shame of living as homeless slaves in the land of Egypt for 400 years, oppressed by foreign rulers, who refused to acknowledge the living God. As an Israelite, you can only imagine what the Egyptians poured, what kind of verbal abuse they poured on the children of Israel over and over and over again for 400 years. Because their, the existence of the children of Israel was clearly a sign that their God was just a petty little God. If God was truly a worthy God, then the people of Israel would not be suffering in Egypt. So the people of Israel were reproached, they were taunted, they were oppressed, they were demoralized in Egypt. But think of it, also when they came out of Egypt and went around the desert for 40 years, what did that do to their morale? As you read numbers particularly, you see what their attitude was like. They were not saying, God, we're having a grand old time here. Uh, we know you're going to get us out of here. And no, this is not fun, but um, we're depending on you to feed us and get us to the promised land. Instead, what you have is the people of Israel over and over again saying, God, you had nothing better to do but to bring us into the desert to kill us. And so you can say that the reproach of Egypt also referred to the ridicule by the Egyptians and others at the people of Israel being in the desert. So from Israel's perspective, now think about it. Here you are. Yes, you have crossed over the Jordan River. But you don't have the land. You have not taken control of the land. God is asking you to do this insane thing, which from a human perspective, that's exactly what it was. And you have no clue that he has been preparing the ground. That's not something you're going to find out until the spies are sent and until they come back from Jericho saying, you know, folks, the inhabitants of Jericho are just totally flattened, they're demoralized with fear. But at this point, they have no clue. And so this is so much like us, in a sense, that God puts choices before us that require a basic degree of obedience 
obedience by faith. And we have nothing as far as facts on the ground to justify that. We don't have any evidence of saying, yes, God is at work. We just have the sense that God is saying to us, I want you to take this choice, to make this choice and to obey me. And we can either say, yes, Lord, or no, Lord. Israel obeyed in faith. Don't know exactly the degree of faith. But this, in a sense, enabled God to do His part. They did their part, and God is saying, okay, now I'm going to fulfill, I'm going to bring to fullness my plans and purposes. Because you did uh, your part in obeying, I have somehow rolled away the reproach of Egypt. In other words, I am now free to do what I've wanted to do. We've seen God's statement of plans and purposes for Israel. Let me just remind you of that in Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. So I have come down to rescue them from the land, from the hand of the Egyptians, and bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And in a sense, folks, that is God's heart for you and I. You know, sometimes we have this awful, awful notion of who God is. You know, sort of the celestial Scrooge. If we're having a good time, he looks down at us and says, cut it out. Um, you're having too much fun. You need to put a stop to that. And we need to see to it that you suffer Yes, the Lord does allow us to go through suffering. However, in and through all of that, and please hear me, folks, in and through all of that, His purposes are not to bring about destruction, but to bring about construction and restoration and rebuilding because that's His heart that we see over and over and over and over again all through Scripture. God is committed to the work of restoration in mankind going all the way back to the beginning of the book and all the way at the end of the book. And we know that here at the end of the book, the work of restoration is going to be finished. So we can back up and say, okay, God, we see the end of the book, that this is what you're going to do when all is said and done. Everything is going to be made new and transformed. So we know because of that, that that's what you're doing now in our life, in our world. And we may or may not be able to see it, but we trust you. We trust you, we depend on you to bring about redemption, to bring about restoration. And we see that with Israel. Here in this situation, that God had prepared the ground for them to go, into, to go into the land and take possession of it. We see likewise that God does that with us. But part of the process is that He wants to remove stuff. He wants to remove things. 
in our lives that are not in line with Him. Again, referring to Paul, therefore let us keep the festival not with old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. And folks, I, I know that for all of us, this is very hard to get our arms around because the truth is none of us want God to come into difficult areas in our life and welcome Him and say, Lord, would you come deeply into areas that are broken, that are, that are filled with hurt and darkness, and would you please come and cleanse? I think mostly our attitude is, Lord, um, I love you and everything, but kindly stay out of this area. No trespassing. I have things under control, or we think we have things under control. Hopefully at some point you wake up and you say, no, I, I get who has things under control. And so we're reluctant to respond to the Lord and to obey Him when He says, you know, I want holiness to be fully and completely part of your life, to be part of every area of your life, every aspect of who you are. As we recite each Shabbat, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And that's what God wants to do. That our love of Him will be full and complete. And it cannot be full and complete if we have all these pockets of yuck, which we all do. I don't think any of us will dare to stand up and say, I don't have pockets of yuck in me. The question simply is, do you want the Lord to come and remove that yuck? Because it brings about reproach on you, it brings about reproach on Him. It, it communicates the idea that God is not able to bring about redemption into your life fully and completely. That yes, He saved you somehow, but then you have all these areas that are broken and messed up and God is totally incapable of coming in and doing anything about it. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 tells us that Yeshua is interceding for us. He is at work to bring about redemption fully and completely. And we look at that verse and say, Lord, that's uh, very nice, and it's going to happen way out here sometime. But at this point, we're just going to plod along, thank you, because I have things under control. We prepare to celebrate the Passover, and the Lord wants a commitment from us to welcome Him to come and bring about purging and cleansing. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I referred to John chapter 15, where it speaks about the fact that, w that Yeshua is divine, and you and I are the branches, and that the Father comes along with a pair of snips 
and clips things that are not fruitful and productive in our life. And you say, oh, Lord, uh, would you please take the gardening shears and use it on somebody else? (laughs) Not today. But remember, folks, the cleansing and the pruning and the refining is never, never, ever designed to be destructive in our life but is always designed to be constructive. John 15, Yeshua said, so that the branch may bear more fruit. And that's what God wants to do in us, folks. The cleansing leads to healing, which leads to redemption, which leads to fullness. Because if more of the junk is cleaned out, then God can pour in more of himself, more of his spirit. You say amen to that. And no, it's not fun. But if we understand the end process, the fact that God is at work, to bring about greater intimacy with Him, greater closeness, then we say, okay, Lord, Um, Okay, if you have to, please come. That's what the Lord is looking for, is that relationship, that intimacy, that connection. Going back to Exodus 6, verse 7, I'll take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I'm the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. There are a couple of words in Hebrew there that give you the sense that what God is looking for is intimacy. Intimacy with His people. I will take you and you will know. Word no, the word know, yada there, has to do with relational, experiential kind of knowledge. It's not book learning. That's what the Lord is after. Remember that, yes, you have the painful circumcision here in Joshua chapter 5, but it leads to something constructive, productive. Yes, in verse 8, when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Verse 10, when the people of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover. They were able to celebrate in the Lord's presence. And then verse 11, on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. God has a productive land for each one of us, not literally, but spiritually. God wants to take us from point A to point B, which has to, 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 to do with being closer to Him, being more productive in His kingdom. 
And all of that requires a willingness to say, Lord, please come. I give you control. I give you the key to every single room in my house, every single closet. No room, no closet is out, is off limits to you. I welcome you. And yes, it's a process, folks. It's a process. It's a process that we, we take baby steps sometimes. And there are areas where we're not yet willing to release control to God. But the Lord is pay, painful, excuse me. When I say painful, I meant faithful. Faithful teacher. And he will pursue us and then come back and knock on the door and say, you know, this is really a bunch of schmutz here. Filth, defilement, pollution. And if you love me, and if you're serious about holiness, you would welcome me to come in and to bring about cleansing. That's the plan, folks. Less of us, less of the defilement, and more of Him. Individual circumcision of the heart, where we say to the Lord, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me. In other words, Lord, where there's stuff, would you please shine the spotlight so that I get it, so I understand, and so that I'm willing to deal with it, and that your ruach, your spirit, gives me the power to face up to it, to, to own it up, to own up to it. And receive the cleansing you have. Would you please stand? Let's just be quiet in the Lord's presence for a moment or so. We're going to conclude in a time of worship. But I believe that the Lord is wanting us to yield ourselves, to surrender and, and give Him complete control and be open and willing to His cleansing work in our life. Why? Because we recognize that He is our gracious and loving Father who has our best interest at heart. And we trust Him for His promises to be fulfilled in our life. And we want nothing to stand in the way of that. Are you willing? And we as a congregation likewise want to do that. Lord, we invite you into our corporate life as a congregation, as a mishpacha, as a family. We ask, Lord God, 
that you would cause us to be a holy people as you are a holy God. Lord God, that the things in us that are not pleasing to you, Lord God, that, that you would address and cleanse, Lord, as your word says, that you will purify the sons of Levi. And Lord, we desire to be clean vessels in your hands, Lord. We praise you, Lord God. We thank you and trust in you that you have good plans and purposes for us. We desire, Lord God, to take possession of the good and spacious land you have pre prepared for us. We don't want just to maintain and to stumble around, Lord. We want to press ahead and take possession, Lord God, of what you have prepared for us. We thank you, Lord God, that hitherto, thus far, you have helped us. Lord, we symbolically set this stone like Samuel did and say, Ebenezer, Eben Ha'ezer. Up until this point, you have helped us. We trust you, Lord God, that you will go before us and make our paths straight, Lord God. Cause us, Lord God, to be a holy people who is, in, who is engaged in the work of your kingdom. We pray, Lord God, that you would receive all the honor and the glory in our lives as individuals and as a congregation, Lord. We pray that you would effect a Gilgal, Lord God, a rolling away of all that is not pleasing to you. So that your, the fullness of your plans and purposes for us would be accomplished. We trust you, Lord God. We depend upon you. We ask all of this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Amen.